Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're coming to you from the Coming Home Network International. And we're continuing our study of the book of Romans. Today we're going to look at Romans chapter 14. And just to remind you, especially if this is the first time you've joined us, if you go to deepinscripture.com, you can find all the uh, the archives of all the old Deep in Scripture programs, and you can particularly begin at the beginning and listen to us as we reflect on Romans. Uh, and part of our goal is to encourage you to maybe start a Bible study where you're at and, and use our discussion as an encouragement to you, give some background. Uh, and Ken, we're trying not to be scholarly here, right? We're trying right, not to fill right. this thing with a lot of quotes. We're really more... We're probably thinking more from a pastoral perspective, I think, than an academic or theological perspective. Mm. How do these scriptures, its fallible, inspired words, draw us closer to Jesus Christ in his church? And we're also assuming that uh, for the sake of radio, we're not going to be able to read this law, all these passages. We're looking at all of chapter 14 today. So we're expecting that if you're listening to this, you might have a, a copy of the scriptures in front of you or maybe go to the website and look at our worksheet to follow along. <clears throat> but this particular chapter that we're, uh, in fact, Ken, maybe I'll, I'll, if you will, I'll throw this into your um, court to place chapter 14, if you will, in the flow of the letter so far. Well, remember, Marcus, that we when we started uh, dealing with chapter 12, we, we started a, you might say, almost the final section of, of Romans. It's that famous verse that a lot of people know by heart. Uh, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then Paul exhorts them, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that is like a banner that goes over the almost the entire rest of the the book of of Romans so that when we are looking at chapter 14 today and the question of of loving uh, our brothers and our sisters in Christ and how we do that uh, we're looking at that in the context of living a sacrificial and transformed life god doesn't expect of us to be perfect uh, on our own but he does, he does expect us to be perfect, but only by his grace. And that's why, of course, our Lord Jesus came into the world, became a man, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, which we triumphantly uh, uh, celebrate this week in this Easter week of, uh, and in thanksgiving for God's victory over sin and death. But what does that mean to live? In chapter 13, we, we looked at this question of what does it mean? What does it mean to live this sacrificial and but transformative life in the context of a Roman pagan society and our in our pagan society as well in many ways? Um, Paul emphasized in the latter part of chapter thirteen that the guiding principle of fulfilling the law of God is to have love, to to be in, imbued with love, the love that only God as Paul said back in chapter 5, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit then is to bring us Christ more fully and more deeply. And that's why he ends chapter 13, verse 14, with 
these words, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will not, uh, and make no provision for the flesh, that is, for our sinful nature, as to fulfill its desires. Now, so Paul has already got us into the context of thinking about how our love for God, uh, based upon God's love for us, motivates us to be, to live in love toward one another within the church. Now in chapter 14, he turns to a slightly different subject, and that is the question, how do we love those with whom we have differences, and what's a difference that makes a difference? And uh, he's going to deal with this question of what we should eat, what we should not eat. We don't know, Marcus, uh, really the background for this in terms of Romans, because the Roman church, because we know that we don't know how much he knew about the Roman church. But it's important, by the way, to, to, mem to remember this, just for our, our hearer's sake, that Paul had not visited Roman, Rome yet. He was writing to the Romans as he was planning to go to Spain to preach the gospel. And that's important because as far as we know, at this point in time, which is about the mid-50s of the first century, neither Paul nor Peter had yet been to Rome, and nor any other apostle. So there was a Christian community there, but it didn't have an apostolic foundation to it yet. When Peter and Paul get to Rome in the late 50s, or early 60s of, this, of the first century, then that's the founding of the Church of Rome on the basis of the apostles. And we know from Irenaeus and from some other church writer, early church writers, even up right until today, every June 29th, they celebrate the feast, the founding of the Church of Rome, based upon Peter and Paul. So Paul here is writing to a church that is a very fledgling community, trying to get its, you know, anchors set, its its fixed points, so it can live properly as Christians in a pagan society. Ken, I was, as you were saying that, it reminded me of a blog that I read. I'm trying to think of who's it what of was. It might have been Brant Petrie, who's a great writer uh, on the internet. But he was dealing with, I think that was it, um, an issue that's behind what we're talking about here. And that is, what do we do, especially Jews coming into the church at that time, becoming Christians, and then Gentiles, pagans coming into the church, what is expected of the pagans? all in relationship to Old Testament law. Right. And this writer was dealing with the fact that when you look at Old Testament law, there are two different levels of Old Testament law. There's the law of morality, and then there's more the law of the, the symbolic, the type uh, mm -hmm. that points forward to a fulfillment, but it's a temporary law that draws us to a looking forward. So the Ten Commandments are the moral, moral laws that never change. Right. They don't change. But circumcision was not a moral law. It was, it was a law that dealt with a spiritual reality that would be fulfilled in Christ. And the fulfillment in Christ was that it was no longer a circumcision of the body. It was, that was pointing to an eventual circumcision of the heart. Hmm. Everything in the Old Testament has that future dimension to it. it it's pointing forward to eventually to the coming of the Messiah, though I don't think that necessarily Moses and those of his time understood that. But by the time we get to the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, yes, there 
you begin to see how the the future coming of the Messiah and the Messianic times are described in terms of these Old Testament or these these institutions in ancient Israel. Um, we uh, the great French uh, biblical scholar of mid century was Father Roland Devoe. He was an Old Testament scholar, and he pointed out in his two volume uh, series. Uh, it's called the, uh, the Ancient Institutions of Israel. When he was studying all that ceremonial law and so forth, um, he pointed out that this liturgical structure was pointing forward to its fulfillment in Christ. And of course, uh, this is part of what's behind the letter to the Hebrews, right? Mm-hmm. When the Christians, the early Jewish Christians and that are the, uh, the addressees in the letter to the Hebrews don't quite understand the fullness of the faith that has been given to them because they're tempted to go back to that ancient system. But the purpose, the telos, the end of that system was to find its fulfillment in Christ. And Paul said that back in chapter 10, remember? He said that the end of the law, the telos of the law, is Christ himself. So he says this in chapter 10 and verse 4, the end of the law is Christ um, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So whether Jew or Gentile, in the church now, we are part of the new people of God. So all those eating and drinking laws of the Old Testament covenant are looking forward to a fulfillment mm-hmm. in Christ. And, and the question that was, became a problem in the early church, remember, that's why there was the first consul at, at, that we read about in Jerusalem in Acts 15, yes, yeah. what do we do with these old laws? Do we impose them on others? And, you know, in that first consul, there were some eating laws that were still yeah. imposed. So as the church grew and spread, you have people coming together that bring with them baggage from their background, uh, rules. It isn't just Jew and Gentile. It wasn't that simple. You have different Jews of different levels of their understanding of their Jewish faith as they come into the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. You know, you had the, the Pharisaic perspective. You had more Sadducee perspective. Um, you may have had very uncatechized Jews who became Christian and brought very little understanding of the past. Maybe they brought a liberal understanding of of their Jewish past. Uh, what was their view of God? Uh and then you have pagans, and not just one kind. You have all these different groups coming, bringing with them all mm-hmm. the stuff. And so if Paul says in the earlier chapter that we are not to think of ourselves more than others, we're to put others first, this loving of neighbor, well, how do we live that out? And Ken, it's so radical, because we live in a culture where they, people will say instead, I have a right to eat what I want to eat, drink, live, do mm-hmm. whatever, and I don't give a flying rip what my neighbor thinks about it or what it, how it affects their life, hey, that's their problem. It's about me, and no one else is going to care for me the way I need to care for myself, so I'm going to go for it. You know, well, that, that, And that's an yeah. attitude that the whole Christian faith is trying to overcome. Right, exactly. And, and, and it, because, uh, in fact, I'm writing another article right now about the nature of the church and been reading the great uh, French uh, theologian Henri de Lubac uh, who is a, a great Jesuit theologian prior to the Second Vatican Council, but de Lubac in his meditations upon the church, and by the way, for our 
Here's it's a, a great book. It's called The Splendor of the Church in English. It, in French, it's La Meditation de l'Église, which means really just a meditation on the church. But what he's saying in there is that by virtue of our being incorporated into Christ, we are automatically members of the church, and therefore we cannot live lives separated from the rest of the body of Christ. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, I think it's verse 3, where he says that by one spirit you've all been baptized into one body. By virtue of our baptism, we are members of the church. Uh, we may not even be formally members yet, but we're mystically members of that church, and therefore we're a part of that body. And that's that's the basis of Paul's ethics here that he's instilling in chapter 14, that love goes beyond a strict obligation to doing what is best for another person. The, the converts brought with them this understanding that they had had in the scriptures about rules for eating and drinking and, and living with one another were uh, significant signs of their relationship with God because if they didn't follow these in the Old Testament, they weren't allowed into the temple. They weren't allowed into the community. Hmm. So what do you do with them? How do you live them out? And uh, the passages today deal with this, and it's not dealt with only in Romans chapter 14. Paul dealt with a similar um, situation in an earlier letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, um, where he begins in verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. So this whole issue of, of, of what do you do with food offered to idols? And, and the bottom line issue is not the focus on the food itself. And that's what's significant, Ken, I think, about all these passages we're looking at. That mm-hmm. he's not focusing on the food because, as he says, and maybe this is the key verse to... to to bring out, and that's Romans fourteen seventeen, and this one's underlined in my Bible where it says, for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the focus of this passage is not about the food, it's about your neighbor. It's about your brother and sister in Christ. And does it make a difference about our preferences for things in our life that our brother and sister don't understand or that are are an offense to our brothers and sisters in the faith. Um, Or maybe, again, Ken, he deals with, he calls them the weak man, the weak in the faith. In Romans 14, it's about eating eating or drinking or a certain day of the week or the month or or. All those issues, whereas the First Corinthian passage specifically is about food, food, excuse me, offered to idols. But the main issue is, what is our concern for our weaker brother? What is our concern? What is our responsibility? Reminds me, sounds like something from way back in Genesis chapter. What was that? (laughs) Right? Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, right. You know, here's this issue. So, Ken, maybe I'll throw it back to you. What does Paul, first of all, mean by the weaker man? Because he uses that phrase often in Romans 14 and 1 
Corinthians eight? Well, it, it's a good it's a good question. I think if we use the context of Romans fourteen, as well as First Corinthians eight, we we get a definition that, at least for his period of time, um, how that's extended. Well, then that's another question. But when he speaks about the one who is weak in faith, he sort of defines it in, in verse two. He says the one one believes that he may eat anything, while the weak man eats only vegetables. In other words, the weak man here is one who is has scruples about eating certain things. And to give a modern-day example that might not, suppose somebody um, is becomes a Catholic who was a Mormon. Now, Mormons are not supposed to drink alcohol. They're not supposed to drink coffee and some other things. I don't know all the list. Um, but suppose they come into the church, and the church doesn't say, well, you can drink coffee, you can drink alcohol moderately, and so forth. Well, um, that person might be weak in the sense that he thinks that his faith is affected by his whether he eats that thing or not. And a little more part of the weakness is what you had referred to earlier. Paul's bottom line is that it's not about the food uh, per se, but the person thinks it's about the food. And that's where the weakness comes in. They think that it's, it's maybe it's a little bit like um, a person who thinks that, well, <clears throat> If I accidentally eat meat on Friday during Lent, you know, I'm going to hell, you know, and so forth. Well, if you if you happen to, you know, get a piece of bacon in the middle of something like that, well, it, it doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean you're going to hell, especially if it wasn't intentional to do that. So the weak man of, of Romans 14 is the man who is eating only certain things, apparently out of the conviction that that is what God wants him to do, or that's the law, or that's right. Now, verse 3 also gives us a little bit of a clue. He says that the one who eats uh, should not despise the one who does not eat. Um, uh, let him not despise the one who doesn't eat. And the one who doesn't eat, let him not judge the one who does. The one who eats vegetables only might have a tendency to judge the other. Oh, you're you're sinning by eating, you know, by drinking coffee or by you know, or by uh, whatever, by uh, drinking that, that glass of wine. Uh, the brother who um, is free to eat these things without a pinch of his conscience, so to speak, might say, oh, that, that guy, he's just, you know, he's got a problem of scrupulosity and so forth. Let me give you a bad case, okay, a really <laughs> bad case, uh, where um, this, I think this priest sinned by doing this, although it wasn't my place to point it out. I was visiting somewhere in another country uh, a few years ago, about 10 years ago. And um, so the priest was driving me around. I was the visiting speaker and so forth. And this man came up to him and said, oh, Father, I need to, will you hear my confession? And he said, yeah, yeah, later, later today and so forth. You know. And as the man was walking away, the priest said, boy, that man has a bad problem with scrupulosity. Well, the priest had no right to tell me that, right? Now, maybe he does have a problem with scrupulosity. And I just listened and didn't say anything, you know, and so forth. But the priest should not have told me that. Um, but let's suppose the man does have a problem, and people have had that problem. Um, the problem of scrupulosity is to feel guilty about things that are not wrong, all right? 
And this is why the formation of our moral conscience is so important to distinguish, did I sin in this situation or did I not? And I can't tell you how many times in the middle of confession I've said to myself, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm not sure whether I sinned in this case or not, you know. <laughs> and the priest usually is very, uh, very pastoral and kind and says, well, you know, well, you know, God knows. So, you know, you just confess it. You know, you mentioned, I was gonna say, you mentioned a little earlier about someone who, um, you know, a Catholic that accidentally or whatever eats a little bit of bacon on, on Friday and wonders if they're going to hell. Well, it's probably good for me to clarify that because yeah. the issue of eating meat on Friday is not a matter of heaven or hell. It, it's a matter of, of of the discipline that the church recognizes is good for our spiritual growth. And that going through a time of abstinence, of setting things aside in submission to the church, because remember back in Romans 13, Ken, Paul says that, um, that the submission that we offer to the church uh, strengthens our conscience. Um, so... By, by choosing this gift of the church to choose abstinence on a Wednesday or on a Friday is a, is a matter of strengthening us. And when we fail um, to follow the, the requirements of the church in that matter, it's, it's a failure for our own spiritual growth. That's a good point, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it's really a clarity of that. It, and the danger is when people aren't catechized well, and then they'll look at Catholics that are doing this on Friday or they're not doing something on Friday, and we stand in judgment. Now we're stepping into where Paul's talking about. We're passing judgment on our brother. Um, you know, we're, uh, we're lifting ourselves above them. Um, you know, and, and that's why Paul says uh, in these passages, you know, who are you to pass judgment, verse four, on, on the servant of another? is before his own master that he stands or fails, and he will be upheld for the master is able to make him stand. One man esteems one day as better than another, while another man esteems all days alike. Let everyone be convinced in his own mind. And then he, you know, he goes on to talk about some of these issues. You know, not, not passing judgment, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. If anything, Ken, it seems like the overall goal in this whole passage of, of Paul, going back to what you said in, in verse 12, 1, being transformed in a renewal of our mind, that we've got to start thinking about our brother first. Mm -hmm. We've got to be thinking about them and how our life and our words can be misunderstood, how they can be a witness. Now, we can become over-scrupulous scrupulous on this, but on the other hand, you know, really, if our brother looks at our life, does he see Jesus? Yeah. Does he see that we've been changed by Christ? Or does he misunderstand the way we flaunt our freedoms? Well, and there's a good example of this, but to pick up on the Mormon example, suppose there's a Mormon family that becomes, you know, Catholic at Easter Vigil, you know, and you invite them over to Easter a celebration at your house and so forth. Well, maybe that'd be the time just to say, you know, I think we'll forego the wine today, you know. <laughs> in, in other words, it's not that it's not that drinking wine is wrong. It's just that for the sake of my brother and his family and so forth, they haven't yet understood perhaps these things in practice. Maybe we'll just forego the wine today, you know. 
or something of that nature. I think when you're talking about your brother, um, it reminds me of a story that I've heard you tell in the past. I think you've even written about it. And it's that story about playing a game, like playing Monopoly or something, you know, and you're and you're betting against one another and you're buying the real estate and all this, you know, Monopoly goes. But then the question is, well, after the game is over and it's put back in the box, what was my relationship with the other people that were in the game? And it's similar. You know, it's, it's funny how that applies to just to business. Yeah. To our relations in the church, to our relations in our family. Is it so matter? Is it important that I won the argument or that I made this point or that they heard me? Or is it more that we have this relationship? And I've discovered in my interactions with uh, atheists, for example, that that's often very, very important. I've ceased to try to, and I don't have as much as I used to, but uh, interactions with atheists, but in my interactions with them, I've, I've often consciously said, no, I'm not going to argue that point because that might alienate them in an unnecessary way. So, um, yeah, so this is why, and what Paul says here in verse 17 is what you what you quoted early, and, and that is that to remember the foundational principle, the kingdom of God, the church, our lives as Christians, Catholic Christians, is not about food and drink. And then we could probably add a lot of other things. But you remember that it's about living in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, how do we do that? Well, he says in verse 19, let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let's let's focus on that. And then verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Yeah. Everything is indeed clean, he admits in verse 20. But it... it it is wrong for anyone to make others fall by what he eats. Verse 21, it is right not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. So we'll talk about that in a bit, in a moment when we take a break. Because he's setting some rules, but there's the danger of setting these rules in the other direction, right, Ken? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, that goes back to verse 2, where on the, on the one hand, one guy is so weak that he's afraid of eating anything. So he's a vegan. In fact, scripture says there the weak man's a vegan. But then there's the other extreme. I I can eat anything I want. I have that freedom. So why should I worry? Well, let's when we come back from the break, let's make sure we we got both sides covered here. We'll come back in a minute and continue with our study couples. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. 
Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're looking at Romans chapter 14, but we're also looking at 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Timothy 4 we'll look at a little bit later in this half hour. Uh, we're dealing with this issue, which, of course, Paul was dealing with 2,000 years ago, but I do believe it's even more a continuing problem today um, it was an acute problem there in the beginning when you have Jewish Christians and pagan Christians coming together, and now they're having meals together. And, of course, in the early days, uh, there was a time when the Eucharist was celebrated as a part of a meal. They would go to temple, and then they would, um, when they are in Jerusalem, they would go in temple, and then they would go in someone's homes. they would have a meal, and then the meal would have after it the celebration of the Eucharist. That's what we think happened later the meal part got a bit complicated, and we see this how it became complicated in 1 Corinthians 11, 10 and 11. And then um, as a result of that, we see the, the, the emphasis being placed on, on the, the Eucharistic celebration in, in fulfillment of the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, um, but yet they were living together, neighbors, families, and like two fast-moving streams coming together to form one stream, there, there's a, a, a huge conflagration in the middle as we learn to live together. And the key to learning together, the only way that Christians can move forward is by putting your neighbor first. If everybody puts their selves first, if half of the people put themselves first, the conflagration continues and exacerbates. When you say can, I mean, it, it, that's why we have over 30,000 denominations today, because we have these people that were unwilling to be submissive to the church, a variety of, you know, lots of issues in, in history we can deal with. But in the end, we have all these churches divided by all kinds of rules about what it means to live in Jesus Christ. As opposed to, as Paul said, put your neighbor first, because he was following the instructions of our Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. Put your neighbor first. Love your neighbor. Put them first. What's their value? What's their need? And if the rivers of people always put other people first, it very quickly can eventually become a smooth river of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's yeah. what he's calling in verse 17. Well, this is what God wanted for his people in the Old Testament. We, we see it reflected uh, to some degree in Psalm 133, where he says, you know, how good and pleasant it is when 
brothers dwell together in unity so that God's salvific purpose is to draw all human beings into the relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, and the church that he founded. To be in Christ, to be baptized, is to be a part of the church. Then the rest of our life at that point is to learn how to live within the church with all the difficulties and problems that we have with other people. There's an old joke I used to hear as a Protestant, you know, if you if you are looking for the perfect church, if you find it, you know, don't join it because then it won't be perfect anymore, you know. <laughs> and uh, it's true. Yep. Uh, we, uh, we, the, the church is not going to be a perfect place, and there's going to be people who are sinners just like us. And so what we need is a charity above all to make uh, make our uh, our judgments in accord with truth, to refrain from judgment at times when we don't know the little story. There's a famous uh, little um, there's a famous little blurb or, or rather a anecdote about uh, Saint Therese of Lisieux. You know, of course, she died at 24 years of age of tuberculosis and was quickly proclaimed a saint by virtually everyone around her. Um, but one of the things that she tells in her story is how she, there was this other nun that was in the, in the monastery with her, in the convent with her, and she couldn't stand this other nun. I mean, she just didn't like her at all. So she decided that in order to overcome her dislike of her, she was going to do things very, very special for her. So she did. And then one day, the the other nun that she didn't like very much pops up and says, oh, we have such a wonderful relationship, don't we? You know? <laughs> and of course, because she lived, even though she didn't feel it within her hearts, that's what Paul is talking about here, is living in love with our fellow members of the church. Uh, we're looking at Romans 14, but 1 Corinthians 8, the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, predated his letter to the Romans, we assume. We assume, and and what we see in First Romans eight is essentially uh, a specific example of what he will then talk more generally in his letter to the Romans. In Romans, he's writing to people he doesn't know exactly what's going on over in Rome. He's never been there, and we, as far as we know, he didn't receive a letter from the Romans giving a list of things that they wanted correction. But we do know that's the background to First Corinthians that he had received a letter, and then most of 1 Corinthians is him addressing concerns in the church. And chapter 8 is this very specific thing. Ken, in this case, let me quickly read this. It's not very long, but it it gives a a concrete example of the very issues we're dealing with, because he says in verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. I love that verse, Ken. We can talk about that later. But if one loves God, one is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom we, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. 
But some, through being hitherto accustomed to idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat or no better off if we do. Only take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, a man of knowledge, at table in an idol's temple, might he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak man is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of my brother's falling, I will never eat meat, lest I cause my brother to fall. So there can we see a summary of, of Paul's theology applied to a direct circumstance. Yeah. And I think it's significant here what Paul says in verse 10 when he says, if anyone sees you having a dinner or being at dinner, being at table, um, who do you have knowledge in the idol's temple? In other words, this, this I think, is dealing with a very specific situation in Corinth where Christians were continuing to go into pagan temples and eat. And Paul is as, trying to answer the question, um, is, this, is this right or is this wrong? Now, what you said there at the very beginning was important about Paul answering particular questions. Uh, our, our, our listeners, our viewers, may too quickly slide over that word, concerning at the very beginning. The Greek word peri, which means about or concerning, is the way that he begins this chapter 8. And that word occurs several times in the letter of 1 Corinthians, just as if, as you said, Paul is answering specific questions that they're dealing with. The question here in chapter 8 is, is it right to go to a temple and to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Well, what Paul is saying is, you know, you know, there's no such thing as a temple. I mean, as as a god, and these these gods that the that the pagans are worshiping. So yeah, you can go and do that, but don't do that if it makes your brother stumble. Uh, you know, Ken, when I was in college, uh, I was the champion beer chugger of the university, so my lifestyle wasn't a model of Jesus Christ. In fact, I didn't have a life-changing conversion to Christ until uh, between my junior and senior year. I was the beer-chugging champion when I was a junior. But I look back on my fraternity days, and the biggest drinkers, smokers, gamblers of the, uni of the fraternity were the Catholics. <laughs> they were. And I was not impressed. And when I had my conversion to Christ before my senior year, I wasn't drawn to the Catholic Church. It's the last thing I considered. Because until I was in my 40s, I did not meet a Catholic. I did not meet a Catholic whose walk impressed me that they were converted to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says here, I'm not to pass judgment on my brother. So I won't do that. I don't know what's in someone's heart. But their life in Christ mm -hmm. did not draw me to Jesus Christ, did not draw me to them. And I think part of what he's talking about here is we have, I was a weaker brother then. You know, I was a, outside the faith. I was outside the sacraments. Mm -hmm. 
And so I was outside in many ways of grace. I could have used a Catholic who was sensitive to my walk in that fraternity to draw me closer to Jesus Christ and church. Nobody did. The one thing those Catholics that I knew, the one thing they didn't talk about was Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So my point is not to go back and, and you know judge those Catholics. It's more about, hey, us. Are we sensitive to the weaker brothers in our lives? And Ken, I want to get back to this meaning of the weaker brother. Would you say that as we interpret Scripture now through the light of faith in terms of the rule of faith, uh, the wider faith, that there's a sense in which the weaker brother is not merely the less catechized brother, um, but maybe the brother who does not have the strength of all the sacramental graces. Yeah, I do. I think that's a, a, a very legitimate analogy that you're making there because um, people that have grown up uh, in Christian homes or Christian backgrounds that are not Catholic don't have not had access to the uh, to the fullness of the faith and oftentimes in almost in parallel to what you experienced what what people do experience is a false understanding of Catholicism now even if it's not in terms of moral laxity it is in terms of misunderstanding what the Catholic Church is really teaching, what it really believes, and they have myths in their mind about this. So it 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 calls upon us, or it rather it behooves us as Catholics, to um, to live with a certain what's the word indulgence, maybe in the sense that we don't we don't just jump on people. Um, there are Catholic bloggers out there. And there's Catholic publications out there that they don't say it in so many words, but you get the impression that, well, you know, everybody except Catholics is going to hell in a handbasket, you know, kind of an attitude. And that's unfortunate because that's not the that's not the attitude of our greatest saints. Our greatest saints were patient. And you see that most recently in St. John Paul II. Uh, he didn't feel compelled to make an argument or to correct someone at every moment. Uh, in fact, what he did was he reached out to try to find areas of um, of continuity and of commonality so that he could then bring people into that, that uh, d- deeper faith. So it really behooves us as Catholics to be very um, aware and sensitive to our non-Catholic friends um, so that we might be a good witness and, and draw them in. Um, I can say without a doubt that that was one of the things that really helped my wife overcome her objections to Catholicism was when she saw Catholic women who were truly committed to Jesus Christ, when they were truly committed to the church. And she just needed to see that concrete example of holiness. Holiness that I would say neither one of us had much access to in our Protestant background. Well, the scriptures clearly say that we are to pursue holiness in the fear of God. Right. That's the call of scriptures. In fact, it says that in, um, I think it was in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter yeah, 7. I think it's 2 Corinthians 7. 7 yeah. 1. I think so. Uh, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit 
and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. And that's what we're called to do. Now, it says in John 6, verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Interesting, Ken. Here we've got eating and drinking as as an important criteria of receiving the fullness of Christ. But it says in verse 56, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And in this verse, Jesus is talking about the necessity of abiding in him, remaining, continuing, not just beginning with Jesus, but continuing for the rest of our life. How do we do that? Well, he says here that it's through the eating of the Eucharist, the graces we receive from the sacraments, if we read this in the light of faith, that him give us the graces we need to abide. And later in John 15, he warns his followers of the necessity of abiding. And if we don't abide, we get thrown away like the branches. Now, every Catholic receives these graces through the sacraments. It does it doesn't they're not magic. It doesn't automatically mean we're holy, because if we're not living in the fear of God and appreciating the graces we receive, we don't live on those. We don't act them out. They don't change us. They don't transform mm-hmm. our mind. And that's why we take the scriptures that help us know how our mind is to be transformed so those graces can work in us to make us become the person we're called to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also reminded of that that text in Hebrews chapter 12 or maybe 13 where it said uh, we must pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And the Lord himself in the Gospel of Matthew says that it's he who endures to the end that will be saved. This matter of salvation is an ongoing project. And that's what Paul meant back in verse chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, when he said, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you're not conformed to the ways of the world. Um, you know, the Catholic Church is so beautiful um, precisely because it has the worst sinners and the greatest saints. I mean, it has this huge range of people in their in their life stories. Uh, the church does that, or the church has that, I should say. The church has that because the church makes available through the sacraments the possibility of holiness. But what it requires is a response upon our part to that sacramental grace to be able to put it into uh, into action in the way that we do that. And we shouldn't judge that over a short range of time. It's something that's going to happen over many years, over a lifetime. But if we're committed to those sacraments and to receiving the grace and, and you might say imbibing that grace, eventually they do have that. All of the churches... Uh, designs all of its purposes in, in, in terms of Lent and abstaining and abstinence on Fridays and all of that, that's all designed to bring us that holiness. 
which, um, you know, is relevant to that First Timothy 4 passage that you mentioned earlier, because that's not dealing with precisely the same thing that we're talking about here. Yeah, maybe let's just, with the time we have, just quickly, Ken, First Timothy 4 is one of those passages that many non-Catholics and maybe anti-Catholics try to say, well, Paul's talking about the Catholic Church because Paul is warning Timothy, and let me read, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons through the pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and enjoin abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For then it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And Ken, I remember back when I was a Presbyterian pastor, I remember in a Bible study looking at this passage and believing that it was pointing ahead to the Catholic Church, because in the Catholic Church we see celibate clergy, we see celibate religious who forbid marriage, and, you know, we have, we, all of us know that there are, we just finished a whole period of, we're called to abstain from food during this whole time of Lent. Yeah, the uh, and, and this the reason that people think that applies to the Catholic Church is because all they see is the law, and they don't understand the rationale behind the law, which is holiness. The early church fathers knew very well this passage in First Timothy. They, 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 they knew it, probably many of them by heart. But notice that that didn't mean that they didn't have abstinence, and they did. They had Lent. We know that Lent was being celebrated in the church. Um, Certainly, I can the earliest I can remember is in the mid third century, around the time of Cyprian, but probably from the very beginning. Um, what Paul is talking about here is people that were forbidding marriage as a matter of salvation. I think, in other words, what he's saying is the true Christianity, whatever that was that these people were saying, is that they have basically said marriage is bad. That's why Paul says in verse 4 of First Timothy 4, everything created by God is good. Marriage is good. That's not the reason that the Catholic Church asks priests to be celibate. The reason he does that is because of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, that some are celibate, some are eunuchs for the kingdom of God. In other words, it's a choice that a man makes or a woman makes to enter into a life that's in accord with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that the man or woman who's not married is free or freer to serve God in various ways. And we certainly know that from experience, that's true. So these people that are behind 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Timothy 4, um, they're forbidding marriage as if marriage is bad, or as if certain foods are bad in and of themselves. Paul reminds us, no, that's everything created by God is good. So while on the surface it may seem, if you're bringing an anti-Catholic lens to the reading of this, these verses, but really this is something quite different. You know, and it sometimes, sadly, gets there because there are Catholics that may talk to non-Catholics the Catholics may not know their faith very well and may express it yeah. in a negative way. Uh, and so yeah. that's how we com we continue this misunderstanding. So we Catholics have to know our faith well. Cam, we've got three that's minutes to go. Point. I'd like to focus on verses 7, 8, and 9. 
that seem to be, why does Paul stick these in the middle of this passage? These all chapters dealing with eat or drink or what day or not, and don't make, make, why why do you stand as a barrier to brother and, and how do you live your life? He says in verse seven, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Yeah, this is a beautiful expression of his theology of the body. I don't mean the human body, the body of the church. What he's saying is that by virtue of our baptism, by virtue of being in Christ, we are necessarily members of the church. And that means that no man is an island. It means we live within for the purpose of serving others to follow our Lord Jesus. I'm reminded these words brought back to my mind, Mark chapter 10, where they disputed and among themselves, the disciples, and asked Jesus, you know, who is going to be great in the kingdom of God? And he said that you, he says, you are the, um, he says, you are to be like me. I can, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You could put that as the motto of every Catholic Christian's life. Come to be a servant, not to be served. It, again, it reminds me, I think it was St. Benedict. I may be wrong, but I, I think St. Benedict said that when we stand at the gates of heaven, the first question we'll be asked is, who'd you bring with you? <laughs> Yeah. I'd like to find out the actual person that said that because the point is who'd you who you bringing with you it ain't just about you the great commandments are love the Lord your God with your heart mind soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself who you bringing with you it's and whether we live or die if you're a Christian you decide right now you're Jesus's that's what it's about living or dying if he wants to take you tonight, fine. Are you ready for that? I'm ready. Because it says, verse 9, I mean, verse 10, I mean, excuse me, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Are we ready? You know, how have we loved? How have we lived out our faith in the church? And it's not about us uh, demanding our freedoms, but if anything, speaking out in love so our brothers and sisters can have the fullness what Christ intended for them. Ken, thanks for joining me on this program. All of you, thank you for joining us on this study of Romans. I hope it's an encouragement to you. Please go to deepinscripture.com. Send us your emails. Next week, we're going to pick up. We're going to start Romans 15. And we're getting close to the end, Ken. And it's been a fun study. Thank you for joining us. God bless you. See you next week.